on September 9th, 2023, I attended the Hemp and Cannabis Symposium at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. I recorded the first speech or presentation given by David Lakeman, the Cannabis Division Manager at the Illinois Department of Agriculture. His presentation was on Illinois cultivation laws. In case you missed it, David Lakeman has recently been on our podcast. I just looked it up and it's kind of crazy. David Lakeman was literally on our podcast September 9th, 2022. So a year later, I met up with David Lakeman at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. In case you hadn't seen it, I, I uh, interviewed him after this speech you're about to watch. If you'd like to watch that interview, it's episode 333 of our podcast. If you want to see David Lakeman's first appearance on our podcast, which, like I say, was on September 9th, 2022, check out episode number 219 of our podcast. Enjoy the speech, and uh, I just want to apologize for not having the greatest quality or um, you know, camera framing. I was sitting right in front of his podium, and in retrospect, I probably should have changed seats so that you can see the entire screen. My apologies, uh, but it is what it is. Enjoy. I'm hoping the coffee is still working its way through. Everybody's getting in there. So happy to see you. Uh, again, uh, my name is David Lakeman. I am the Cannabis and Hemp Program uh, Manager for the Illinois Department of Agriculture. I'm going to get into what exactly that means in a little bit here. Uh, but first, I do want to thank our host, Dr. Kinsel, everyone who has organized this program. Uh, this is a great thing that you guys are doing. Um, I'm going to get into this a little bit later, um, but just in terms of the history and what you're doing here, right? Uh, hemp has had a variety of industrial <coughs> and military uses throughout the history of this nation, certainly, and for a long time. Uh, in December of 1941, much of the hemp that was used for industrial or military purposes in this country was grown uh, in the Philippines. Uh, much of the hemp that was used for those same purposes in Europe was grown in primarily southern Ukraine, uh, an area that is uh, in the news again today for similar reasons. Uh, after December 7th, uh, when the Japanese uh, forces overran much of uh, the Western Pacific, there was suddenly a great need for this plant across a variety of uses. Southern Ukraine was occupied, the Philippines were occupied, much of Southeast Asia was occupied, and there were no source of this, sources of this plant, which is used for so many things, available anywhere to the allies that remained. And so in 1942, the Illinois Department of Agriculture launched a program called Hemp for Victory. And again, I'm stepping on my own toes here a little bit, I'm gonna to get to this later. Uh, but it was a massive program to enlist, especially farmers in the Midwest, specifically Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, and the surrounding region, to grow hemp. Uh, a single battleship, for instance, uh, during the war needed 35,000 feet of hemp cordage, a single battleship. And ultimately, this state stepped up to that challenge. We grew over 20,000 acres of hemp by 1944. The products, this plant, marched to liberate Western Europe. It sailed on the ships of the Navy and with the Marines as they did some of, fought some of their greatest battles of liberating the Western Pacific. And it is a part of that, that very great heritage that this program is stepping into. And I'm, I'm very proud to be here and encouraging the work that all of you are doing. I'm a Southern Illinois guy myself, right? And this, this, this product, this plant grows so well in this state. It is a thing that the state's perfect for. We grew a huge percentage of the total hemp grown by the Allies writ large in the entire war in this state. 
And so the work that you're doing, the students, the programming, is so vital to the future of this program that is so important to me, and I'm very thankful to be a part of what you all are doing. So thank you very much for allowing me the opportunity to be here. Uh, and with that, I'm gonna move from the historical and exciting to the mundane and bureaucratic. Uh, <laughs> so it, cannabis was legalized at the adult use level in 2019 when the Illinois State Legislature passed the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act. Moving forward, that's a bit of a mouthful. I'm gonna to refer to that as the CRTA, if you don't mind. Uh, I was in Massachusetts at the time. Uh, well, I am an Illinois native, my wife is an Illinois native. We were in Boston for her to pursue her PhD. Uh, again, our family greatly supports grad programs. She is much smarter than me, but she still married me, so nobody's perfect, I guess. Uh, during that time, I was one of the first senior staff uh, with the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. Now, Massachusetts, it, it's easy to forget, is a much smaller state, uh, barely the size of some of the Southern Illinois congressional districts, for that matter. Uh, and it's not really known for being an agricultural state, aside from cranberries, which was something I had to learn. Uh, so the hemp program was not really advanced there, but of course cannabis was. It was the first state on the East Coast to legalize, and so we had a lot of work to do. I had the pleasure of working with some of my former Illinois colleagues in crafting the CRTA while I was in Massachusetts. Uh, and then in 2020, I was brought back to help get that program off the ground at the Illinois Department of Agriculture. But the Illinois Agri Department of Agriculture only regulates part of the program. Now, of course, self-interestedly, uh, we regulate the majority of it, right? So we regulate the 21 original cultivation centers that were approved under the 2015 Compassionate Use Act. Uh, these, are the, these are very large. They are industrial facilities. They are cleared to grow up to 210,000 square feet of canopy flower and canopy space. Uh, those were the core of the program up through when the CRTA was passed and adult use cannabis was legalized. Illinois has chosen a fairly unique regulatory structure for this program. So unlike many other states where there's a commission or there's an agency that regulates this, uh, in Illinois, it's split up among existing agencies. So again, at Department of Ag, if it grows, we regulate it. So not just the cultivation centers, but then the newly legal uh, craft grow facilities. Uh, the state is cleared to issue up to 150 of those, and there are currently 88 of them. Uh, we regulate the infusers, which make some of the other products you've heard of, some of the oils, uh, yeah, cookies, brownies, things like this, the kitchens, that's where those facilities, that's what those facilities do, uh, as well as the 222 transport licenses. Uh, again, so relatively self-explanatory, these are the licensees that take the cannabis from one place and drive it to another. So if you're a grower and you need to get your product over to a dispensary, you utilize one of the independent transporting organizations. In addition to that, however, we also regulate the Community College Vocational Pilot Program, which is a program I couldn't be more proud of. It's one we don't talk about very often. It's not as exciting, it's not in the news as much, uh, but this program uh, focuses on building the next generation of, of people like some of you in the audience, people who are gonna be leaders in this industry moving forward. When I started, uh, it was a matter of frustration to me occasionally. I would go into facilities, I would talk to the employees, and what would they tell me? Well, I got my training in Colorado. I got my training in Washington or Oregon, and not here. What we're aiming to do with the community college program, what you're aiming to do with your program here, is train this next generation of leaders in cannabis, in cannabis policy, in cannabis science, in bud tenting, and any of the other pieces of this industry right here in Illinois. And in five years, my vision, what I want to see, what this administration wants to see, is that when we go to Missouri, when you go to Wisconsin or Minnesota, or even Michigan, when you ask them, 
where did you go to school? The answer will be Illinois. And certainly, when you speak to someone in an Illinois institution, we went to school in Illinois. We came here to learn from the state that is the forefront of cannabis policy, and we stayed here. We stayed here to make a life and to continue to push forward what this program looks like right here where we got trained. And that's something that's incredibly important to us. From that point, uh, at the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, they regulate the dispensaries and only the dispensaries, so both the medical use and adult use. Uh, we also work closely with the Department of Public Health. Uh, they, they run the patient program, but they do not regulate the plants. And again, putting everybody to sleep before the coffee's hit, right? <laughs> but it is key because this, this it is an interesting program. It's a fairly unique one in terms of how the program is structured. Um, we also work closely with the Illinois State Police. Now, the Illinois State Police, under Illinois law, are not actually charged, they have no regulatory power. What the Illinois State Police does is they partner with their regulatory agencies, uh, and they work on things like combating diversion, so product being taken out the back door, or other criminal elements that, you know, happen. If, if, if for instance, this, this has happened, uh, a facility is robbed, right? They, they work with them. So those are the, the primary agencies. We also work with the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, which runs the grant program, uh, which many of our cannabis, uh, our new social equity cannabis licensees have worked with. So again, to make it a little bit even more dry, uh, this is our structure here at the Illinois Department of Agriculture. So when I started back in 2020, our program uh, consisted of two office staff and five inspectors. Uh, by the end of this year, we will be over 100 staff members to engage with the industry to be a support to them. So I'm a division manager, which is a term that is meaningless, uh, and I have three bureaus that report to me. So we have just built two of them, licensing and administration, which helps handle self-explanatorily, the licensing and administration of the program, agent badges, uh, the licenses, agent renewals, license renewals, constituent inquiries, things along this line, these lines, as well as changes in ownership or changes in location. So if you are an employee of a cannabis business, you have to have a registered agent card with us. If you are a business that wants to change location or make a change to how your business is operating, you have to file that paperwork with the department for the law. So that bureau handles those functions. The Bureau of Inspections handles inspections. They send the field staff out. Uh, they make sure that these, these facilities are compliant, uh, that they are safe, uh, and that's, you know, the employees are safe, the product is safe. They are eyes and, eyes and ears in the field. Uh, one of the bureaus I'm most proud of, however, is the new one we've just created, which is the Bureau of Laboratory Testing. So we will be one of the first state-run cannabis testing laboratories in the nation. Uh, I've worked closely with my colleagues in other states. There's an association of state regulators called CANRA. Uh, we have engaged with them. Uh, and since we announced this effort, uh, several other states, including my former colleagues in Massachusetts, have announced that they're moving down a similar path. So we are building a facility at the Illinois Department of Agriculture building, which will assist and partner with our independent testing laboratories to provide an additional backstop to provide greater expertise specific to testing for our field staff to ensure that the, the foundation of this program, which is a safe testing program, is actually doing what it needs to do. So we're in the process of building that. We've just hired a bureau chief, a 20-year veteran of, of lab testing in the state who has, who has developed lab procedures for testing and actually determining differences between hemp and, and cannabis. Again, a largely artificial distinction, as many of you will know, uh, but nevertheless, one we have to respect as a regulator. So we're excited to get that program up and running, and I do anticipate that we will partner with many of you 
uh, as that program actually starts getting up on its legs and we, we get that equipment installed and start hiring to build it out. So, it's a very different world than 2019, which we were trying to determine last night was the first of these symposia uh, in the world of adult use cannabis and frankly in hemp. Since that time, uh, we have, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, we have added, we have gone from solely 21 cultivation licenses to adding, uh, to get to 362 licenses. We have added 88 craft grow licenses, uh, a total of 150. 100% of those licenses were social equity licenses, which is something that we're very proud of. We'll continue to work with our licensees to ensure that they're able to get up and running. And look, we, we understand there have been challenges between the lawsuits, between COVID, between other issues, we know that it has not been a smooth process for anybody. But what we are trying to do, both on the staffing front, programmatically, and every way we are able, is to support those businesses to make sure that they are getting the support they need from us as a regulatory partner, and that we are smoothing those barriers moving forward so that they can get up and operational and we can have a robust, developed, competitive, and equitable industry. We have also issued 54 infuser licenses, and as I mentioned, 222 of uh, the transport licenses, as well as awarded 10 participants in the community college program. So in terms of revenue, this has been a game changer for the state. Uh, we have, in the last fiscal year, there were $1.5 billion in sales. Now, that was before any of those new licenses I mentioned to you were up in operation. That was solely on the basis of the dual licensed industry that existed prior to the CRTA being passed into law. So we're talking about simply the 21 cultivation centers as well as the initial cohort of DFPR dispensaries. Right, so moving forward, at this point there are nine operational craft growers and there are 15 more in the construction pipeline and we've got about a dozen more beyond that that are close. There are eight operational infusers, and 12 of those are in the pre-construction phase, again, with many more working with us to get into construction. Our hope <coughs> is that by the end of this year, over half of the first licensing cohort of craft growers, infusers, uh, and transporters will be up and running uh, and operational in this space. This has, of course, had a large impact on the state's fiscal picture. It has also been a net generator of jobs. So by the, the administration's estimate, there are over 30,000 people in this state employed in one way or another related to the cannabis industry. So that is not just the people who are actively working in the facilities, right, of which there are roughly 10,000 across the entire industry, but we're talking about supporting IT infrastructure, HVAC, plumbing. These, this is a brand new world in, in across a host of factors. You're gonna hear some presentations later today about effective strategies for growing indoors, the science behind that. You're gonna hear about advances in LED lighting that manages to provide for the proper wavelengths that the plant needs to succeed, while also not being quite so demanding on the electrical and water grids. This industry is driving science forward. The more that we do it, the better at it we're gonna get. And again, this is why programs like yours, why the community college program are so vital because we're starting from scratch here. There's no century-long industry the way that there is for traditional agriculture set up to develop incremental tweaks that will allow this industry to get more efficient. We're talking leaps and bounds here. I overuse the metaphor a lot from a bureaucratic standpoint, but it's true in the industry as well. We are building the plane while it's midair, 
and also the boarding process is on, ongoing, and maybe one of the wings is on fire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. So this is what we're doing, right? And this is what the industry group is doing while also facing the other challenges of an industry that is not able to access traditional tax incentives, that is not able to access traditional financing, uh, that in many cases can't even get things like various local approvals or even cooperation with, with rural electric co-ops, right? There are, there are stigmatization efforts, there are stig there's still stigma out there. And that's one of the things we have to work on. This is an industry that's focused on jobs, it's focused on equity, and moving science forward. And we need to be a regulatory partner for all of you who are working on those things. One of the other pieces of the Illinois program that, again, I'm particularly proud of is the R3 program. So this is the Restore, Reinvest, and Renew program. And this program has invested massively in communities that were impacted by the war on drugs. This is, this, these are revenues from this program that are reinvested directly in those communities to rebuild infrastructure, to rebuild community areas, to reinvest and renew these places in this state that have been left behind for far too long. This is a way to ensure that the proceeds from this program don't simply all go to those who already have the most, but that we are investing in those that were most grievously harmed by the past excesses of the war on drugs. This is to ensure that this program doesn't just talk about equity, it walks equity, that it looks like a program that is focused on those, not just that already have a lot, but also those that were left behind. And I'm proud to be a partner with the Lieutenant Governor, with the administration, as we work on those investment programs. I wanted to include this just to give you a sense um, of where some of these new craft growers are. Now, you'll know, of course, there are always going to be a number of them clustered around the Northeast, around the city of Chicago, this is expected, the infrastructure is there, some of them want to be around needs, but we're also seeing a little bit more growth in Southern Illinois, right? And this is something that we want to see more of. These are facilities which are not easily outsourceable. These, are, these facilities bring in, again, as we discussed, not just the jobs in the facilities themselves, but all the ancillary jobs around them. And as time goes on and those facilities expand, there's only more opportunity there. And speaking personally, my goal for this program is to prepare us for the day when federal legalization does occur. I'm going to talk a little bit more about rescheduling later. Um, I'm not sure that that's the silver bullet everybody wants it to be, but there will come a time when this, this program, when, this, when cannabis is federally legal, and I want Illinois to be on the forefront of that program. These facilities, yeah, thank you. These facilities are extremely capital intensive. They take a lot of work to build. Not just the 21 cultivation centers, which are large operations, but these, these craft growers, they require an incredible amount of work. They are intricate facilities, and having been in almost every one of the new facilities that are building out, each one of them has a broad system of challenges that's roughly the same for every licensee, but also each has their own individual challenges. How do you prepare for potential expansion while also focusing on your corporate growing needs? How do you get the staff you need when everyone else is doing the same thing? How, in a time when there is a massive infrastructure bill and a CHIPS Act and an IRA pumping hundreds of billions of dollars into infrastructure across a host of ways, get basic things like wood or steel, right? And this is a problem when you can't access, unlike every other one of those industries I just mentioned, again, any basic tax financing, any basic 
financing in any sort, when you're paying exorbitant interest fees, or for that matter, even higher spike fees. And this is true even for the hemp industry, which is, which is federally legal. It is a challenge. And again, we are determined to be a partner to hemp industry, to the cannabis industry, in overcoming some of those obstacles and being successful. But what part of that looks like is making sure that those facilities are built right here in Illinois. When the time comes, what we want to see is an expansion of those facilities when legalization happens to make Illinois a hub, not just for growing, not just for finance in Chicago, which it is becoming, but for every part of this industry in the entire Midwest, I intend for Illinois to be a leader. We should be. This was the first state that legalized via legislation, the very first. We were the 11th to legalize in total, but we'll be the first one that didn't need a ballot question to force the, to force the issue. We're an innovator, we're a leader. We've stumbled, we haven't done everything right, but we're also learning. And I wanna see these jobs continue to grow, to expand. And again, this program is so vital to that because when we do that, where are the people who are gonna run these facilities come from? Where will the bud tenders come from? Where will the head growers come from? Where will even the, the project managers come from who know how to manage the flow of HVAC, who know how to manage the lighting and the water usage? They're gonna come from here. And I want to continue to see that moving forward. In terms of demographics for the new growers, 48% of the whole, the entire new licensing cohort were black and brown businesses. Again, we're very proud of this number. This is, this is what the program is supposed to be doing. And again, we know we haven't done it all right, but this is a number that we want to continue to work on to encourage that participation, to be sure that the benefits of this program go to everyone not just those who already have the most. I want to move a little bit on because I'm running out of time. I, I already know Gary's going to play the, uh, the Oscars music and get the cane out. So uh, I want to also talk about hemp, right? Because hemp is the underappreciated cousin of this program and it doesn't get as much discussion. But at the Illinois Department of Agriculture, again, hemp grows. We regulate it. We want to make sure that it's a successful program. Um, one of the pictures here on the left is in fact the Illinois Department of Agriculture hemp plot, which we grew at the Illinois State Fair this year, um, which did great. Uh, last year we did it in the little tubs, which not surprising to anyone here, did not do well. Once we got them in the ground, our fiber hemp actually got to over seven feet. Um, and, I, and I will say, I, I, I really wish I would have put out the jar that said you made a joke about samples because I would have retired and I wouldn't have been here this morning. So, uh, so what is the difference? Again, this audience really doesn't need to know this, or I'm sure most of you already do, uh, but primarily, in, in the view of federal law, this is the scientific this definition to the, to the federal law, is it above or below 0.3% THC? That is the question that they look at. So, we have a strange bifurcation in our unit where we both regulate hemp, which is a federally legal substance, and cannabis, which is not. Our hemp program has to interact very closely with the Illinois Department, or the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, and again, being housed at the Illinois Department of Agriculture, we've got a lot of folks who have a lot of experience working with USDA, and every one of them has told me they have never seen the USDA engaged at the granular level, excuse the pun, uh, that they have been on hemp. I mean, when we, when we had, so the Illinois, Illinois has to submit a hemp plan, which governs how hemp, hemp is regulated here in the state. That hemp plant has to be approved by the USDA, and if they don't approve it, then the USDA itself will run that program. Illinois has made the choice. We want to be sure that in every area that we are able, our program is as welcoming to new farmers 
to bringing in new generational farmers and to being as supportive of them as possible. So any place we were able to tweak it, we wanted to do. So we continued to run our program. That being said, the USDA went through and, and points literally corrected grammar and punctuation in our hemp plan. And I, and I know there's been frustration at times, some of you in this room, in terms of what our hemp policies and rules look like. But I just want to have everyone to get a little bit of an understanding of just how much oversight USDA exercises over this program. We have very little latitude, very little ability to, to alter what we do from the federal perspective. So right now, in terms of where the rules are, we have, we are currently still operating under the rules that were established in the 2014 Industrial Hemp Act here in Illinois. We have submitted a hemp plan, which has been approved by the USDA, and we are currently engaged in the rulemaking process to basically execute on the rules USDA put out from the 2018 Farm Bill, which, which descheduled hemp. Again, this is as boring and dry as it gets, but this is the real meat and potatoes of how this industry can survive or not. So it was a really great hearing process. We, we opened it up for public comment, and there were some things that we, we genuinely had missed. And it was, a, it was an excellent process for us to engage with the public, to engage with hemp farmers, and to better learn. What did we miss? What can we do better? So we took all those comments into account. We have sent them back to the USDA, which has gone back and forth with us six times. Um, and from this point on, we will move through the state rulemaking process, which is called JCAR, the Joint Committee on Administrative Rules. Um, they're also the ones in charge of generating all the other acronyms that make it hard to keep up with government. So uh, from that point, we, and it's more challenging than most rules because we have to keep USDA happy and we have to keep JCAR happy and we have to make sure that those are synchronous moving forward. Uh, because if JCAR makes changes, USDA may come in and say, whoa, whoa, we didn't approve that. Um, so that's where we are now. Again, it's a slow process. It's frustrating. But we want to make sure that we do it right. So we are moving forward on those rules to implement the 2018 Farm Bill. Uh, I assume that we will get those finalized about three to five days before Congress passes the next Farm Bill and makes additional changes to the hemp program. Um, but we have been engaged with Congress on this. There are a number of issues that impact our hemp farmers. The number of samples per acre, that continues to, to be a huge challenge for all of our hemp farmers. The actual testing threshold, uh, Cover for processors. There are two types of licenses here in Illinois. There are growers and there are processors. The processing side is not actually covered by the USDA. There is no process that the USDA does not provide a process for states to have processors. So Illinois has done this, Kentucky has done this, Minnesota, Montana have done this, but not every state has. And so we're again trying to lead on this industry without that federal guidance and being sure that uh, those challenges that they face are not, don't have additional challenges from the, fed, the federal government coming in saying they can't do what they're doing. So again, what I just said. I want to include these, and again, I, I led with this because it's, it's part of what's so important to me, but this is Hemp for Victory. If you have never seen it, uh, this is a, a, a video that the US government tried very hard to deny existed uh, for a very long time, uh, and then ultimately someone found, I believe in Florida, a VHS tape of it, which has now been entered in the Library of Congress. If you search YouTube for this, you can find it. And it is exactly what you think it is, from the very campy music uh, to the narration. But it is very fascinating, right? So the, the US had a, a massive hemp program. And again, we're, we're, we're the successors to that. We have to do better than we're doing. And that's what we're trying to do. 
And again, running short on time, you don't need to know what the, the various uses of industrial hemp are. Many of you know, I saw a whole bunch of them right outside on those tables. Plastic, hempcrete, rope, clothing, paper, right? If I had a magic uh, policy wand uh, that I could only use in this particular piece of the industry, we would never cut down another tree for, for wood pulp again. You know, this, these are all factors, these are all things that the, the Illinois hemp industry, the, the hemp industry in this country could do, given proper support once it gets off the ground. And that's what we want to see moving forward in a place that grows it so well here. So currently there are 154 registered growers, there are 158 processors, and there are 4,761 acres approved for planting. Um, again, all of those acres will not be harvested, as many of you know, and that is a challenge. That number is significantly down than it was from where it was three years ago. Um, but our hope is that having moved through the challenges of COVID, some of the challenges with federal regulation of CBD, we will be able to reach a point where we start to see those numbers get on the rebound again. So, knowing what our time looks like, a few more things moving forward. One of the questions I have already got received several times just last night, what is the impact of rescheduling? The shorter answer is, we don't know. The long answer is, at the beginning, there will be very few impacts on how the state program is, is run. The primary area of impact that rescheduling could have is primarily in the area of finance, right? This, if done in coordination with the SAFE Act, which seems to be the direction at least the Senate is heading at this moment, would potentially finally open up some of those revenues of funding and financing that have for so long been denied uh, this industry, both, both hemp and cannabis, right? A lot of people still fail to make that distinction. Again, I heard this, I can't count how many times last night that there are still these same challenges between cannabis and hemp, despite the fact that hemp has been legal since 2018. Um, so will that change how we approach it? Potentially. In the short term, no. We will continue to run our program the way that we do. And my suspicion, though I, you know, who knows how it will ultimately shake out, is that if this is federally legal, uh, and again, this is just David here, I've taken off my regulator hat, uh, it will look largely the way that federal regulation of eating poultry plants, for instance, looks where the federal government lays out the guidelines but relies on states for enforcement. Right? That is the current model for meat and poultry. So are the folks that go out and, and inspect meatpacking plants here in Illinois. They work for the Illinois Department of Agriculture. They're funded in part by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but primarily it's a state-focused program ensuring compliance. I expect that's largely what it will look like in the interim, given the challenges of regulating an industry that is already active in enough states to hold a constitutional convention with no federal guidelines. Um, again, Safe Banking Act potentially in the future. Uh, 280E was included in the last legislative session, uh, which is a tax provision, a tax deduction provision uh, It's important for the industry. Ultimately, the answer is there's a lot of things up in the air. We're going to do our best to be reactive, to be ahead of it where we can, and to continue to be a good partner and resource. Uh, and that's just why so much of what you're doing is so important, because this this workforce, more than almost any other, is going to have to be agile, it's going to have to be thoughtful, and it's going to have a lot of uncertainty to react to in the next 10 years. So again, I really appreciate you having the time for me up here. I appreciate all the work you're doing. Uh, I know we're running close on time. I'm happy to answer questions now. I'll be here most of the day to answer questions. Thank you very much for having me. So after the speech, uh, one question was asked, and we only had time for one question. And um, unfortunately, I didn't capture the entirety of the question, but I think that by hearing what you're about to hear, you're going to understand the question. Uh, but just in case you don't, I'm going to try to 
summarize what I recall being asked. Basically, these farmers, these hemp farmers are spending a lot of money on testing. And so it seems like what this farmer was asking is if if he is growing a certain variety, knowing that that variety never exceeds 0.3% THC, is it required that they get tested? And it sounds like he's actually referencing uh, progress they've made in other states where that is not a requirement. In other words, if you do have a variety that is that you can confidently say will not test hot, then uh, you are not required to test it. So here's the question, and uh, thank you so much for watching. That's that's all there is for this presentation. Once again, I just want to say that if you check episode 200, sorry, 333 of our podcast, you can see the interview that I had with David after this presentation. Let's give our speaker one more.